How do we sound? Testing one, two, testing one, two. So this song we have is uh, it's a uh, royalty-free uh, ska music. <laughs> this just gets some free ska music because at a certain point it'll all sound just as good as each other. You know what I mean? I feel like there's a ceiling to ska. Yeah. Sometimes you just settle on that first stroke. That first idea, you're like, I'm going to do that. And it, it works sometimes. You All keep right. It. So uh, we kind of missed our... Uh, welcome to Baltimore. Um, we'll do Maryland. Welcome to Baltimore, Maryland. It's your favorite podcasters. The art pros with a living art pro in the studio. Mr. Larry Poncho Brown, everybody. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Like, <laughs> this is, a, this is a, a Be More connection right here. Yeah. So I know Poncho through my work with Urban Arts Leadership. I see him all the time during events. And we're here. We're excited because he invited us over to the studio. And I snuck in my audio recording equipment. And kind of <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even know I was coming. That's, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> this so. place is beautiful. You guys should really check out Poncho's work. It's incredible. Do you, do you have some words you want to say to the interns? Well, interns, I mean, you know, y'all supposed to be researching, so just go <laughs> online and uh, check out my Wikipedia posting. It tells you a little bit about what I've done globally. I wanted to ask you, did you write that yourself? No, I did not. You can't. <laughs> uh, the, the restrictions on that is changing as we do. I actually hired a service to help me do that. Cool. And it's uh, based on the information. Um, before, I, I was a, a pessimist. So if you said Wikipedia to me, I had some smart ass comment to make. <laughs> uh, but now I realize the value in it. Um, so what I've been doing is that if you can imagine for the last um, 10 years, when I did get interviewed by newspapers or whatever, the reporters ask you similar questions. And so what happens is that after a while, after 10 years, you have a baseline of redundant information out there. Yeah. That ends up online, that ends up everywhere. And so that affects your Wikipedia postings because you don't really have any any meat. It's the same stuff. That's kind of fun. So now what I do when I do my interviews, I'm conscious of creating new content that's going to be documented in an article somewhere that will pick up and fill in the Wikipedia page that I have. Also, what I do before I would have a guy come in and interview me and I, I never reviewed what they wrote. I just kind of went with whatever and they told me what paper it was in. Now and I have them send me back what they're getting ready to submit. If a reporter says Poncho is a millionaire, <laughs> then it goes in Wikipedia as Poncho is a millionaire. Oh. If I say I'm a millionaire. They won't use it. Yeah. So that's some next level stuff. That's well, that's like good. 100% art pro stuff right there. Absolutely. So you heard it here. Yeah. Poncho is a millionaire. Get this on Wikipedia. <laughs> it's well, all that's about- my point is that you got to be conscious of what you put out into the universe now because there's a baseline of information. Don't believe Go ahead and Google yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's a baseline of information on you right now, no matter what level you're at. And, and, and I want you to like my bio has been circulated for 30 years. So that means that's redundant information in my bio that people have been using for a fact that ends up online Yeah, that Wikipedia will use bits and pieces of it. So that means that my bio can't be the same anymore. Is there anything that's a lie on there? Um, <laughs> you know what's so funny is that there are some mistruths in it because what happens is if they, if they um, when they do the in- initial Wikipedia search 
they find a baseline of information based on you. Yeah. If there's an article there where somebody had my name wrong, then it's going to show up as part of their information. If I have a lie that got through, it's going to end up as part of the information. And so that's the part about Wikipedia that you got to be conscious of. But at the same time, I'm always not looking at the negative. It's like, how do I harness it so that I can get the most positive energy and information I need to put on my baseline? So it made me really change how I'm interviewed. Cool. So let's familiarize people a little bit with who Poncho is. If you don't know who Poncho is, you definitely should know who he is. He's been working in Baltimore City as a Baltimore City artist for over 30 years. Do you, can you, uh, 40 years? I didn't want to say 40. Celebrating my 40th year. So Poncho started art at the age of one. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, my story is, it's a simple one and it's not an uncommon one. I went to Carver Vocational Technical High School and at one point in Baltimore City, um, African-Americans didn't have a lot of different places they can go to get um, a vocational training. Yeah. And so we had Mergenthaler, we had Carver, and we had a couple other schools that did trade-oriented formats. But I went to Carver and I learned commercial art there, which is how I got my scholarship to MICA. So when I got to MICA, I took graphic design. Um, And um, at that point, I thought I was going to be a sign painter. I really did. (laughs) Uh, I got into graphic design, didn't like it, but I still did it. I was painting and drawing in the closet all through that period of time. I got my first job at 14 because I um, Carver had a three-year lettering program that you got work-study on your third year. And I picked it up in three months. So I was the first 10th grader to ever sign to work-study at that school, which means I got my first job at 14. Yeah. But that means that I started my first sign business when I was 17. So while I was going to MICA, I actually started building a client base then. Uh, it just wasn't in the realm of where I am now, but all of the entrepreneurial training, the how to n- nurture clients, how to get work was something I learned in high school. So by the time I transferred that to what I'm doing now, it was an easier transition than most artists get exposed to. Yeah. Would you say that your time at Carver, like because it was a vocational school, was more important than your time at MICA? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because if you can imagine, if you're going to a vocational school, you're going to academics half of the day, you're going to a trade half of the day. So when I got to MICA, I was actually above average when it came to the studio programs over there. But I was in English 101. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was a 90s student all through school. Yeah. So it just shows you. So when I got to MICA, my immediate issue wasn't about adjusting to the workload of the studio classes. It was to English. And that's my only language. So yeah. you can imagine how <laughs> embarrassing that was for me to go in and be put in English 101, because who was in English 101? The foreign students. They were speaking three languages. Yeah. So that's the, where the vocational education where I actually suffered academically. But because I was so advanced in my uh, other classes, it gave me room to catch up because I wasn't reading regularly. I wasn't. Uh, it just it was a different kind of a setup. Yeah. yeah. You were focused on your skills. And I'm curious about that, that entrepreneurial spirit and mentality that you did you develop that did was it something through your experience was it something you learned during vocational school uh, absolutely it was definitely attributed to vocational education because you were a small you were primed to be a small businessman out of out of high school got it 
you had to learn how to use your trade. You had to go to, and we learned everything from bricklaying to the, all the things that people needed, uh, food service, uh, cosmetology. These were the trades that everybody used to survive. So here I was, a sign painter. That was like, you never worry about work as a sign painter. Mm. And so, but we also had to learn how to nurture a client. How to, I used to walk down North Avenue and go into a store and say, yo, man, I can't read your sign. I got a guy that can do that for you. <laughs> and they would say, well, send them tomorrow. And I would show up with my brushes. Mm. That was a form of how we, we were able to, to approach clients. Mm. And I can't tell you how that mentality manifested itself to me being a full-time artist because I don't wait for, as we were having that aside our conversation earlier about grants and the this and the that and the traditional way that we go about doing things. My mind was never sensitized to the traditional way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm able now to look at how artists do that. Um, I, I'm looking at what things are available, uh, the grant system. Uh, there's all these art initiatives coming up that are, they, they have good sides to them, but they have more bad sides than good. Um, and just the whole idea that your craft can be marketed and branded any way you want. Yeah. And you have to be willing to create your own following. And that's what I got from vocational education. That's fascinating. Creating that's- your own following. Because once you say it from that perspective, it changes the playing field. Because, see, sometimes we go into entrepreneurship and we still have a working for somebody mentality. Yeah. So we don't have a real open view of how big the lane is right now. Because right now we got a crazy orange man in the office <laughs> and everybody's sitting around here murmuring about the crazy orange man or they're murmuring about all the crazy other political stuff that's happening. Yeah. And while they're doing that murmuring, the lanes are completely open. And so that's what I've been preaching to all artists. It's like, what are you doing to create another destiny for yourself? If, we, if you want to sit down and have a conversation with me about applying for a grant, then let's do that. It's a limited conversation. You're now going to be pulling from more people looking for resources than ever. When Orange Man got in office, they cut money to the arts. Okay, so typically in the back in the day, because I'm 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 now becoming an old timer. When you apply to a grant, if you got 50 applicants, you were lucky. Now everything is no longer regional; it's national. So everybody's got a national database. So now where a grant used to appeal to 50 regional people, it's appealing to 500 people from all over. That's that's where the competition comes in. It's like the game has changed, and we're not, and we're still acting like we have a regional mentality. You know, I was sharing with you earlier. I just recently had a situation where I got to jury a public art commission um, at Penn Station, Penn North, uh, at, at, at one of the substations there. And I got to see the applicants that came in. And it was about 50 applicants. Um, I would say one third of them were Baltimore artists. And I would say another third of them were outside of the city. Now, one third of the, I would say uh, 50% of them were artists. The other 50% were agencies what? applying for the same art commission. It changes the game because even you as an artist, you're not thinking you're competing against a small ad agency out of yeah. New York City for uh, a commission in your city. Yeah. Now, luckily, when it's flipped, the uh, a local artist was selected, but now it's being selected for more than one reason, see, because now all of the commission prices and all of, the, of those prices have gone down. So while all these art initiatives are happening in the city, they're actually paying artists less. They're shopping for who's giving the best price. Mm-hmm. 
And so now if you look around Baltimore City, you'll see what I'm talking about. Go to Philly and look around first. Yeah. And look at just just look at the art. Look at the billboards. Look at the, the murals. Look at the, the public art. Then I want you to go to Richmond. I want you to look at the same thing. And I want you to come to Baltimore. And you'll see exactly what I'm saying. Take when notes, you start, interns. Yeah, when you start locking people down to $1,500, $550, i have seen some crazy numbers for art projects. And, and artists are just drooling to get them. You see a standard of art in a city that's horrible. Baltimore's art scene right now, despite all of the art initiatives that's happening in Baltimore, is poor. It's because they're not paying artists. Artists are getting the crumbs that's falling on the ground. And we're so eager to get those crumbs that we don't realize we're messing up for every other artist that comes behind them. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's like uh, because of the bureaucracy, all the hands that that money passes through to get Absolutely. it from? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But the hands, see, everybody now have, have all, historically, people have always used the art industry as a backdrop for support. So people will drop money for any kind of art initiative. They really will. Yeah. Half the grant money you're talking about was from folks that knew, knew the need and they were throwing money at a particular situation. Yeah. But now you, you got everybody's, and all these agencies are now becoming arts administrators. See, art administrators suck the money out the middle of the big money that's coming through um, the money that they're paid, uh, salaries, uh, whatever else. You got to pay for those servers, for those emails that you're shooting you back and forth it. all and day. And so what's left, the trickle down is what the artists are getting. And so now because their budgets are being affected certain ways, of course, they can't offer an artist $5,000 for a project. Now they got to try to get fifteen. Yeah. And what happens is because everything's so competitive, artists are taking it at fifteen. Yeah. And so you see the how that whole thing falls on its edge. And that's not just happening here in Baltimore. It's happening everywhere. Do you think that a lot of these initiatives, uh, the way they generate their profit is by claiming that they're fixing the exact problem you're talking about is like, okay, we're going to help get money into the hands of so-and-so type of artists. No, it's, it's, it is because when Penn, when the situation happened in Penn North, yeah, uh, people outside of the city wanted to help. So they sent money in. Yeah. And because of, there's a couple of agencies, you got Bhopal, you got the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance, you got some other folk. They got the call first. So that means when that check comes in, these folks get to figure out what's going to happen with that check. Yeah. Okay. So then you figure out how they do it. They, they know how to put out calls. They know how to scrutinize what's going through. But now it's a game happening where that money's being absorbed by the agencies and they're no longer really looking out for the, the artists. The artist is the last tier. The artist has always been the last tier. But now it's it's becoming like really like ugly. <laughs> yeah, it's like just throwing crumbs. I get it, and, f- and we're we're stuck. So we're either not participating, and if you are participating, you're doing it for crumbs. I often get the feeling that um, artists, especially like smaller or like smaller groups or just individual artists, are treated and packaged uh, as objects to be sold to like. Uh, benefactors i guess does that make sense it does make sense and 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 i can hear where you we're having a generational conversation right now yeah so uh, right now everybody believes they're a social advocate yeah everybody you're born to believe that you're a social advocate and you can affect change uh when i was coming through everybody wasn't (laughs) (laughs) so that changes the art game automatically the fact that everybody thinks that they are yeah and so where artists used to always feel like somebody owed them something that's always been kind of a feeling 
imagine that coupled with social awareness. Yeah. It's it creates a hybrid of artists that's kind of strange. It's like they're more knowledgeable about how things go, but they're probably nowhere near as prolific as the ones before them. Yeah. Because they're now they're introspective. They're thinking about what they're gonna do, but they might not even be hacking out any artwork in their studio. <laughs> I mean I can't tell you I've been doing a lot of portfolio views all over the country. And the one thing I see happening is that people aren't creating art. Yeah. They're bullshitting. Don't show me something from 2016 when you were a student. Where, where were you <laughs> up to now? Why is there a void of a year in your work? Why is there a void of, of 12 months, six months in your portfolio? So artists now have become these robot thinkers. They're not creating art. And then the agencies and, and, and the initiatives that are around... We got a system of things happening right now that can actually stifle the creativity of a lot of different people. But my thing is, if you're an artist and you brand yourself and you build your following and you partner with different people that require and appreciate what you're doing and the playing field is already large, you stand a better chance of surviving. I've been a full time artist since I was 17 years old. Nobody could tell me that a black kid, a poor black kid from Baltimore would have been able to do that. You know, so it's a different time, but some of the rules still apply and the political scene is alive and well. And so we got all these initiatives now that it's really confusing things. OK, I'll give you the biggest one, the diversity movement. The inclusion movement has done more to disrupt the art business than any other agency, any other industry. So here we go. People of color, black, brown, yellow, whoever is in a specialized group. We want to make sure that these people get an equal chance at doing whatever, okay? Then you go, okay, we're going to sprinkle in LGBTQT in that same environment. Whoa, what just happened? So if I had an African-American initiative or concern prior to this diversity movement, what just happened? See, I had the civil rights movement. I had a whole bunch of other things that were motivators for me to find my road. Now there's nobody catering specifically to my group anymore. Yeah. It's now a diverse thing and they can be racist in your face now because they're accommodating this group of people with the idea of equity. White folks now can talk to me like they're my equal or like they understand what I'm going through and they don't. And... African-American is at the very, very bottom of that whole triangle. So I'm real abreast of what's available, um, how it's affecting us, these new movements that are affecting us, the talent level that's out there. Um, but what I do know is that this is the best time to be an artist. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can get into fire and brimstone about what's happening, yeah. but this is the best time to be an artist. If you are an artist right now, everything is kind of lining up like the planets for you to do what you got to do. Technology is at the core of everything. If you are a musician now, you had to go and find a person that had equipment, that had this, that distribution, X, Y, Z. Now you can go with about 500 bucks and buy enough equipment to do what you need to do till you mature. Double-edged sword, though. It's a, no, I got you. Yeah. And when I'm not going to deal with the double-edged sword because mm -hmm. we're kind of talking about that now about how the playing field is equalized now yeah. mm -hmm. and how talent and all those things play in and how now people are now beginning to compete who never would have been competing in the past. So that's the double-edged sword. But to me, when you have the tools 
there ain't no. That, that, let's just talk about the sword. Mm-hmm. When you got the tools, the le- only things left is creativity yeah. and a plan and an entrepreneurial sense. Mm-hmm. And now, because we got these words like branding and this and that, everybody, people use the word branding like, I'm going to brand my. They don't even know what the real uh, understanding of branding is. It's re- about repetition, it's about reputation. It's about relationship and it's about doing it redundantly, out loud, strong and hard, taking no prisoners. That's what branding is. It's not so cute title for how you identify yourself. So the world's become a little (laughs) bit more aggressive, but I'm enjoying it. I'm watching it like a big chess game and I'm either failing on the chess game or I'm winning on the chess game. Game's still a game. It's still fun. And regardless of the double-edged sword, you still cut something with it, regardless of which Absolutely. side you're you yeah. still use Absolutely. the sword. <laughs> well, I, didn't, still a I only reacted that way because there's two sides to everything. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. As social networking has two sides to it, but you're, you've you just extended your reach by billions of people. I don't want to hear about the sword. Mm-hmm. You can give me whatever negatives you want to give me about the other side of what that means. Everybody's not a pedophile. Everybody's not uh, stealing <laughs> identities. Mm-hmm. You're talking about I can pull from a couple of billion of people? Yeah. I couldn't do that in 1980. I couldn't do it. There was no way to do it. It was no way possible. I was forced to be a regional artist in 1980. When I got into the business, I was never regional, but I'm far from regional now. And no, and most people now can launch a website, social networking. You're not relying on people in your area anymore. Mm-hmm. But you'd be surprised. Talk to the average artist. They still sound like it's a regional fight. I'm curious because I read an article before I got here about you sitting in a bus and you noticed this um, people taking out art from trucks and putting it in a building in New York City. And you stopped the bus driver and you got out and you made you you made a, the decision of coming back there because you had this intuition that that might be where you had to be to succeed. And I think that's a good way to kind of um, understand the difference between today <coughs> with social media and without it. And when you said that the principles still apply, I thought about what you said about your vocational school and understanding. Today we use the word content, and we use that as a as a vehicle to, to get, you know, so supply the demand that people are having with whatever it is today it's a similar thing as an artist now the vehicle is with the screen in our pockets so back then you made the decision and you solved the problem for yourself because you were opportunistic and saw that chance and i'm just curious about like you know making that jump of you know my, some people might feel like it's a risk other people might feel like it's a necessity so I just wanted to, you know, kind of elaborate on that, well, that opportunistic. Uh, I mean, for me, it, you got to remember most of the, my progress happened before social networking. Yes. Most of my success as an artist happened just prior to social networking. Um, I had already put 20, 25 years in before social networking even came about. So there was already a pretty intricate network of things set up that allowed me to reach 500,000 homes with my work that could never really happen now. If an artist right now started right now to try to replicate what many artists 
took advantage of between 1980 and say 95, they wouldn't be able to do it. Social networking would give them a chance to do it, but there was a sensitized market of things that were happening back then. And that my success came because my people were looking for culture. They were dying for their culture, you know? So all of a sudden they, they, they had no black art and now all of a sudden this thing came out. If you can't imagine, I don't know people's, a lot of people's faces are just scrunched up like, what the hell is he talking about? If you can think about, uh, most recent thing I think, the, the crazy that happened with the Black Panther. That's what happened with me in the 80s with art. It was, they were finally, oh man, finally something I could relate to. Man, a, a black superhero, a, a, a black cast. Uh, they just bought completely into the whole notion. Folks were starving for that kind of attention, which is why that movie mm-hmm. did what it did. When I was coming through, there was the same kind of craze happening with art. The Bill Cosby show had just came on TV, and all the art on the show was by prominent African-American artists. And they were two professionals, supposedly, you know, upper uh, upper echelon family, both was doctors and this, that, and the other. They had all these kids, and they had this immaculate house that suddenly you had access to the pieces that were on that wall. Remember back to mm. good times when JJ had his artwork? The same kind of thing could have happened in the 70s, but technology hadn't improved to that point. Nobody could afford to print anything in the 70s. If, if Ernie Barnes' work was readily available in the, in, the, in the 70s, the same movement that happened in 85 would have happened in 75. You said something interesting in that article, too, by saying that it wasn't popular to self-promote and to do that branding and, and, and talk about promoting your work and it's totally different today. Now you have to oh, do it. Oh, it's man, I made enemies. I made enemies. <laughs> I had to fake a company name for about 12 years because I knew the chessboard. And I knew if they knew it was me self-promoting, it would affect me. So I came up with a company name and act like I was an employee of the company and had been going to the trade shows and selling my work. And these fools were going, man, we like your work, Pancho. Uh, 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 does, your, does your boss have more pieces? And I would go, yeah, I think they're getting released some new pieces in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and I would go back and I would just, and it took them a long time to figure out it was me. But by then the demand has already set. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I came up with a slick master plan. You got to figure out what's happening and figure a way on a chessboard how you going to get around it. Mm-hmm. And I, you said risk? Yeah. Man, you got to be bold. You got to have balls. Even if you're female, you got to have balls. You got to jump in there and be willing to take whatever chances are out there because what else is there? Conformity? Or going in, into the same trough that we've been talking about? Because there's all these troughs laying around of people just feeding yeah. from one place and they're expecting for something big to happen. It's just not really designed to happen from a trough. It's just not. Have you ever heard about Patreon? That's something like I really enjoy right now. Yeah, I have. I like Patreon a lot because it's an opportunity to kind of like interact with other people and really prove how much integrity that, you know, your you have as a person putting out that branding because i think that's a big part of branding is you know how much you put into it the type of work into you put into it the type of consistency you put into that energy because you can be consistent but it's easy to tell if it's just like you know does how much does this person care well i mean again you're talking about integrity and oftentimes when we're trying to assess a movement of any kind we're always questioning integrity in what we do. And that's something that the new generation does to a fault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is you're weighing on an issue that has nothing to do with the game. Okay? Branding has been going on since the beginning of time. 
You can sit down and come up with all these aesthetics that you think make you a better. No, branding is branding. Branding is making sure you connect with as many people as you can and you form an identity with these people. That's all you're trying to do. My branding is Poncho. Poncho, Poncho, Poncho. Poncho is a synonymous name, y'all. It's not on my birth certificate. It's not in my banking. It is a fictitious name. You got an African-American brother from the hood in Baltimore who's going by the the the, 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 uh, the uh, moniker Poncho. If I can make it and brand an imaginable name, then who? what are we talking about here? I know what branding is. Branding is repetition. Branding is building a brand. Branding is... Coming up with an identity is identifiable. Branding is a reputation. It's not all these other aesthetics. It's about repetition. After a while, people know what to expect. When you see the Coke symbol, you're not questioning the integrity of whether that Coke will clean off a battery versus mess up your intestines. You're looking at the swoop. You're looking at the red and white. You're not concerned about the other stuff. So why should we as artisans have this level of perfection we're trying to reach? No, focus on doing good work. Focus on being repetitious. Be badass about it and let it stand for itself. That's what branding is. And see, I don't mind when artists get caught up into the aesthetics. Y'all go right ahead. I'm going to be way up front dealing with some other stuff. Because a lot of us, we get into these corners. We got these communities now. When I was coming up, artists were so frustrated. They didn't have no outlets. So when we got together, all we did was moan. And if you had one guy that was doing well, you you were just feeling good that he was doing something. Now, all artists are moaning. They sitting in these little circles. They pick about 10 artists. The artists are all together. They're more unified than we were. They know each other. They know each other's work. They do shows together. They, they, they put their resources together to do exhibitions. None of them making a dime. Mm-hmm. They're so yeah. content with being in their circle. There's a a lot of people call it like the, so we've migrated from, you, you, you talked about how it used to be regional artists and then the internet has made it so people can be international. But I think what's happening is everyone's becoming, they're, joining these villages online, yeah. these aesthetic villages. And they're like, all right, I'm going to have a group show with, you know, 10 of my friends and one of them's in California and one of them's in New York and one of them's from Hong Kong, but they all do 3D modeling art that's you shiny. You got it. You got it. You yeah. got, and see, I'm watching your body language while you're explaining this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, no, no, you just had a particular <laughs> attitude about how that's being approached and, and that's what that's true that's what's happening yeah that's the new wave of how we are socializing the social network has completely changed how we view all of that stuff but entrepreneurship that don't a lot change. of us talking about it i don't think that, that so really now changes. i've watched people do stuff like that and they can't get people to the building they can't get people to buy anything and if they do come they come in to socialize how many times you've been to a nice art exhibit that has some good up and coming artists and y'all all sitting around and y'all having artistic conversations and y'all using art speaking shit. <laughs> and then when you look at who's actually buying artwork, ain't nothing happening. No, no one there. You know, this is- And then y'all not using your power. So everybody that's in the show is not going and doing their own individual branding on the room before. Yeah. So now you come in, you done paid your booth fee. You get ready to ride off with other people that did PR because you didn't do none. <laughs> 
You know? And then when I start asking artists, and Renz, you know this for, for, for a fact. When you was at the program, the first thing I asked y'all was to put, give me a business card. No, you told me half the class didn't have business cards. Yeah. Okay. Then I start asking them detailed questions like, "How big is your mailing list?" And they were coming up with these funky numbers like two hundred. Uh, I got seventy five. I'm like, oh my god, all of these people are brain dead. No business card and no mailing list, and they were born into this new world that we into. So people still not getting that you have to connect masses of people together to be successful. I'm successful because I keep at any given time 200 followers around me that buy my work. That's how I survive. I'm not surviving off the ones that bought my pieces back in the day. I'm surviving on new people that's coming in. And if I can keep that average around 200, I can even drop down to 75. I'm probably going to make my living. You know, and nobody's expanding. You know, we got all these things that's bad, you know, aesthetics and perfectionism Mm -hmm. and uh, perfectionism and you name it's a whole bunch of stuff that are isms that we pick up from society. They have nothing to do with being successful, you know, or stifle a project. You I've watched more people and you probably know what I'm talking about where they become perfectionists to their own detriment. They want shit to be so right and so ready and so this that it take them six extra, extra months, a, a year to get this shit done and implemented. And I'm watching legions and legions of creatives be constipated. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I like this term that I heard one time. People are afraid to be successful. Yeah. And I call it perfectionist your own detriment. Mm hmm. Yeah. No, because now you just do it. You launch it. You learn what's going to happen from it. Why you you are you developing it? Hey man, I got to get my website just right. Oh, I got to get this right. Yeah. Oh, I got to get this right. Oh, I need to do this. Oh, I need to file from an LLC. I need to do this. And now people are building companies. I got the uh, um, bright images, uh, something, and they're building the company. They're not building themselves as an as a particular artist. So now they're going to build this company for three to five years and then realize, oh shit, when people want to find me, they're going to look for my name. So then you got to go all the way back, rebrand yourself and start over again. I've seen these things happen over and over again. Branding is, is very specific and it's very relentless and it's very repetitive. I think that like a lot of artists, especially our age, come to this, well, we're so like the the bad side of social media is clearly that advertising is more than half of the the information we intake, especially like high level advertising. Like you said, Coca Cola, any whatever Pepsi. We talk about Pepsi a lot. Um, a lot of people our age can't discern the difference between like an authentic like artist personality and a branding campaign that they see. And I think that the reason why people shoot for perfection, and I face this issue, is that I see you know things that do big numbers and it's because I forget that they have hundreds of people working on those projects. They have millions of dollars to throw at these things. And I'm like, oh, their website's perfect. Like I don't want to launch unless my website or my product is as good as MIT's product or website. I got you. And you just pretty much just personalized what I said the statement before that. Yeah. It's that's it's a cycle of that happening. And and I think social networking does that to you. We you're aiming for a level of perfection sometimes that doesn't have many variables. You just look in and you're trying to uh, adapt to it and you don't even really know. Yeah. I mean, these people are reaching their job is to reach millions and millions and billions of people. Right. Yeah. 
while you're looking at the aesthetic of the website, now you should be. If you go to Amazon and everything on Amazon has got a white background, it's got white images behind the product line, then you need to go to your website with all them funky ass colors yeah. and, the, and the, all those backgrounds behind your products. And you might want to make the switch. <laughs> you don't have to, to have uh, your own identity, but you got to pick which one you want to be. I personally want to be like Amazon. Yeah, you want to make those sales. Oh, yeah. No, it's yeah. just not it's about smart. sales. It's about a language. It's about they've already studied what people react to. If, if if I do an email and I got to click three times to get to a product, but Amazon makes it so you click once, then why would I sit here and go, well, <laughs> I'm going to be cute and give them some information to make sure they're enlightened first before they make their purchase. Yeah. No, I wanted to be one click too. Yeah. So I think sometimes we get this whole aesthetic of how we should be and shooting for this level of perfection without actually going through the process of learning what works for you and what doesn't work for you. You got to put yourself out there to see what it's going to be. And then you'll have a factual representation. Okay, my clients don't do this. My clients do this. But have a baseline of where you start. And what happens, we get so confused with creating the foundation level yeah, it's taking way too long to get it together. Yeah. You know, and, and guess what? Most of this has nothing to do with money. Most of us say, well, we don't have the money to do it right now. We got to do X, Y, Z. We got to raise some money. <laughs> we need to do a grant. No, you should, both of y'all are shaking your heads and making faces. But I'm telling you, that's the way people are thinking now. And everybody's constipated. Yeah. <laughs> they have everything they need, but they're not on go. And the strongest slogan I have ever seen in my entire life is just do it. It's true. Yeah. Well, I wanted to reel it back a little bit because we were talking um, a little bit about how there is a stigma about self-promotion. So I'm the reason we're starting this podcast and we're really happy that we have someone like you as our first guest is because we're we got tired of the sense of gatekeeping that happens in our conversations you know you talked about just now like when there is a show i feel like people are trying to talk smart more often than when they should just be talking about why they're they're enjoying being there why they enjoy the art and as honestly as possible and i don't think it happens enough so that that grinds my gears a lot is the accessibility to have um, an open and fun actual fun conversation with somebody that's art related or creativity related like Sometimes it feels like it gets away from the point of making art in the first place, which, you know, a lot, a lot for me personally, it's about the enjoyment of, ju- first of all, making it, sharing it. And it goes the same for when I watch and look at other people make and intake their it's, that sounds it's just as you know as that. you you should get a, a TV show like Mr. Rogers because that should sound is so wonderful yeah <laughs> but that's not real for everybody no. you, that level of integrity is not something that everybody's going to have and so you got a cross section of people that's going to go for that and feel that mm-hmm. and you got masses of people that won't mm-hmm. at some point you're still supplying something and it has to be packaged a particular way mm-hmm. and so we get caught up in these old s these these conversations of of aesthetics and, and and all that kind of stuff and that just messes things up um oh i mean i find that most podcasts about art and like this is where we found where we saw a gap you know to develop a niche most podcasts about art I feel like if we were interviewing from their format, I would have been like, oh, so what 
made you decide to use these types of colors or like where did you go to school and I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to well one I'm learning a lot from listening to you this is really cool I normally talk way more but you're dropping so much knowledge um it's just we want to have this opportunity to bring the identity of artists and have it packaged and able for you know regular people to listen to and I really appreciate right. I like Mr. Rogers is cool. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I I and I I, I talk in a particular style, and yeah. sometimes I I'm faulted for um, my visualizations. What I'm saying to you is that your concepts that you're using to do this business thing, or this because it's a business thing, whatever it is, you're yeah. doing this to hopefully not just educate, not just engage. You're trying to make a living and, and create streaming income. And so you can get stuck on the other stuff and lose the basics of what you're trying to do. Now, see, that's already a problem because most people don't want to sell out for the dollar and make the dollar first. They want yeah. to make the essence of the art and the this and the that. And I'm like, well, no, you do that in your studio. <laughs> you know, your integrity comes from when you sit down that moment, you can't even claim that moment. You were time traveling anyway. Um, all the concepts you came up with is bullshit. Because you you either went into it with a concept when you sat down, or like most artists do, you sat down, you got your therapy, and things just came to you and came through you. Mm, when yeah. you get done and you got to come up with art speak, that's the bullshit part. Yep. You can speak mm-hmm. that to anybody. And we locked into this cycle of that. A lot of bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Once you create that piece and get your therapy, which is all the creator intended anyway... And then you put it on the side and decide you're going to take it out and then show it to the public and sell it. Those are two different sets of equations. And we're trying to group them together. First thing for artists is get your damn therapy. That's what it was given to us for in the beginning. For your ass to sit down, to rethink things, find a way to communicate, reconnect, reassess, spiritually align and then when you finish that piece, you do another one and you will stay spiritually engaged the rest of your life. Now, selling art is a different conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I like to look at it. And most artists aren't getting their therapy. I ask artists, man, man how many pieces did you create in 2018? Oh, man, I did nine. Nine. How are you going to do nine pieces out of 365 days and feel like you're having a conversation with me? I might not need to talk to you. That shit might rub off on me. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you got to be viable, man. Yeah. If you're trying to make a living, you at least got to do 12. That's one a month. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, a lot you of know, people just don't like produce. venues. How many venues did you, how many chances did you get? And I break it down to them first and say, well, you got a chance to share and show your work. Now, I didn't say sell, share and show. Oh, I did three things. Uh, three? How the hell are you going to... What business can you do in three months? Makes no sense. And they said it with confidence. I'm going to put some space between me and you. Because that crazy might rub off on me. Three? (laughs) If it ain't 12, it's not viable. You got to be able to track your earnings for a year. On a, on a basic level, you need to punch your numbers and, okay, I made 3000 6000 10000 12000 60000 100000 200000 That's how it works. And then the next year, you either duplicate it, replicate it, or whatever you're going to do. Artists are so confused now that they don't have a concept of what's expected from a business or entrepreneurial perspective. And, and, and ideology 
Lord, we be arm wrestling ideology. We ain't even had a conversation yet. So what you keep asking me is I keep breaking it down to simple. Okay, I hear you and I hear those thought patterns, but they have nothing to do with being successful as an artist. Now, you want to be successful as a business person and you're, you were not trained to use business person and art together. That's why we all have a problem because nobody said it was okay. Right. So when I decided I wasn't going to work with the traditional realm of getting a representational person or a publisher yeah. and doing it myself, I was against the grain. Okay. But I had to be against the grain because that means I would be feeding from the same trough or maybe not have any opportunities. Mm-hmm. So th- a lot of what I'm saying still is alive today. We're waiting to be validated by certain people, certain entities, certain um, organizations. We're trying to get into these clicks, thinking that something big is going to happen for you. Guess what? It ain't going to happen for you. You might get one or two opportunities to fall on the ground, but if you don't duplicate those things, you're going to be in the same rut waiting for something big to happen. The big to happen is you sitting your ass down and figuring out who you want to partner with for the kind of project you want to do. Mm. And that might have nothing to do with a damn grant. Yep. Yep. This city has... More buildings than we got people. There's more real estate here if you want to paint it, whether legal or illegal, right now. You can put a mask on right now and set a scaffold up and paint whatever the hell you want to paint in Baltimore if you are that up on getting your work out there. You know? It just feels like, what what do you want to do? What what do you want to do to forward your own agenda? If you're not collecting a following of people and sustaining that, then all of it's going to be temporary. It's interesting to me how you've had that mindset the whole time before even this social media dichotomy has come up with the idea of like. Well, I, it, it, it came, it, but it came not because I was a mastermind. It right. came because I had a certain, a specific problem. I was a graphic designer trying to be recognized as a fine artist. Nobody wanted to hear that. Okay, well then I tried to morph from graphic design into illustration. That didn't work. You're a graphic designer. Illustrators don't grab. They know. You know. I got to, I, every chance and turn I made. I was categorized by the next. So by the time I went to try to be a fine artist, uh, you know. So when I went to the trade shows and started doing those things, they their focus was on selling to the masses. So I was like, okay, I can sell to the masses. What do I need to do that? Well, my dad was a printer. I was printing business cards when I was 12 years old. I wasn't alienated by the process. I went to a printer and find out how much it's going to cost to run a thousand copies. That's how my career started. While most artists was trying to figure out how the art business worked, I was already publishing. That was the simplest thing that could happen for me in the 80s with technology making it possible for me to run a thousand sheets for four thousand dollars. Now that costs around twelve hundred dollars. It's crazy. So, no, I didn't know right away. I got into it quite because I had to be able to service these people. The trade shows up that the the story you were telling. I went up to New York City with a portfolio. Someone called me and says, Poncho, I know someone is buying illustration for Ebony, Essence and Jet magazines. I was already excited. I was on the bus before they can tell me. I went there and I was surprised it was a white guy there. That was going through the portfolios. <laughs> so he's flipping through my book and looking at me rather than looking at the book. And I go, man, I came all the way to New York for the same shit. So I'm like, okay, well, at least I came. 
jump on the bus to come back to Baltimore, and I'd go past the Javis Convention Center. People running in out the building with canvases, jumping in the taxis and limos. And I'm going, let me all right here, man. I want to see yeah. this happen. So I got out. I went into the show. It happened to be Art Expo. And at that time, the Art, art Expo was bigger than what Art Basel is. It was the largest art trade show in the United States at that point. Man, I bullshitted my way in there. It was the last hour of the show. And here I am in a place that's got literally thousands of booths trying to run through that place to see art. I can't tell you how frantic it was for me because I had never seen that before. And I just knew something was going to break. And then while I was doing my run that last hour, my brain, because I'm, I come from the inner city, I only counted three black people to hold out of all the booths I saw in that show. And I said, that's where I need to be. And within two years, I was in that show. And so that's kind of how it started for me. You get introduced to different things. You got to figure out when to take that leap. And not enough people are leaping. People are being very cautious. They're being the risk. You mentioned risk earlier. No one's taking risk. What risk is there to forward art? What are you worried about? Rejection? I mean, what is there? Are you going to explode if they say no? No. So we're actually become this, this passive aggressive group of people who are super knowledgeable, who are very sensitive, who are socially conscious, but we're constipated. People are getting in their own ways in, in general. And then get a group ways. of people around us like that. That's a pretty strange movement. Man. It's a pretty strange movement. I'm, and I'm witnessing it happening and compounding yearly because what's also happening is that the opportunities are getting less and less so you see it more right i feel like that's a huge influence on people too you know yeah well, absolutely because because nobody's preaching you have to create your own destiny you got to create your own connections you got to create that next movement that next movement is not going to be employment with an agency that's doing that specific thing you want to do give yeah, me a break is that real not no, okay, let's look at, uh, uh, just looking at the trades. Right now, you either a photographer or you're not a photographer, and you either a videographer or you're not a videographer. Just because you got the equipment don't mean you can do it, mm -hmm. okay? So now you got a lot of people doing this shit that's not good at this shit. Like, I, I can do photography, but I may not <laughs> be as good as a photographer. You know, I can do editing, but that might not be as good as a person that's doing film. So now you got all these people that's, bumping elbows and shuffling and got this this what's happening with the work now i understand you're trying to be you want your project to be top-notch and professional mm -hmm. but at some point it's like that's getting in the way of what needs to be done mm -hmm. you said the most important word is content right now everybody needs it from netflix on down to whoever you need I mean, it got tons of places that need content. And that's a that's a very lucrative place to be or a very good place to conceptualize where your next dollar is going to come from. You talked about Pepsi. Well, what happens if you put commercials in the middle of this? Suppose you go to a couple of your friends. Give me, you know, Gina, give me uh, $50 to do an ad in the middle of my show. Mm -hmm. you, think she, you think she'll do it? I don't know. Well, my thing is, you ain't going to know till you try it. Yeah. Yeah. So now here you walk talking about sponsors one day, and you can't even go to people who you know will give you $50. Hmm. So my thing is, you can create... I, I did my radio show two years, man. I was working with another outfit. Um, I had full right, the way I negotiated the show, was a show that talked about marketing. So I decided, well, I'm not just going to talk about marketing. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk to artists because artists have a particular way of marketing themselves. So I yeah. think, okay. So I was kind of hard hit. It went off and started. 
they wanted me to, to raise money for sponsorship. They wanted me to do sponsorship package. That's what you run into with radio and some of these other things that you got to raise money to even pay for this stuff. Most people now doing podcasts, they ain't getting paid for it. Yeah. I don't get it. You got people right now that will pay $50 like it ain't nothing. People will spend $100 like it ain't nothing. How many commercial breaks can you produce for $100 for your own show to make your own stream of money? And see, people are not thinking entrepreneurially. They're looking at stuff and they're assessing stuff and they'll say, hey, look, I know I can't get a big uh, sponsor like Coca wanting them to do a commercial. But hey, what about the small guy? What about Kevin's, uh, uh, Nancy's across the street? If you talk to Nancy and you buy sandwiches from Nancy and you go, yo, Kevin Brown, can can I get an ad, run an ad for you in the middle of my show? I'm telling you he's going to do it. But your ass ain't even sensitized to ask to find a stream of income to even pay for your own show. This ain't costing you much but the equipment, but the sponsorship, that's easy. That's easy. I'm going to run around the block real quick because I'm getting pumped up from all pumped the... Pumped is good. Yeah. Pumped is what's missing. Up. I yeah. run out of the block. Pumped is what's missing. Do some laps. Because my thing is that it's, it's as dismal as all the stuff we talked about sounds. It's still wide open. It's the best time to be an artist. You have every tool available to you right now. But if you're not willing to sit down and design the people you want to partner with, then you're just playing a, a, the wrong end of the game. Play checkers rather than chess. Mm. I'd rather play chess. Yeah. Gives me more options. You want to mm-hmm. play checkers? You want to play tic-tac-toe? Go ahead. Have fucking fun. You're going to meet at the same goddamn place every point. Okay? <laughs> I want to play chess. Because there's a lot, a lot of other ways to do this. And if an African-American brother, I'm probably the lowest totem pole right now when it comes to promoting art. There's still an avenue out here. There are people like me that want to see what I do. And it's my job mm-hmm. to not sit here and give you all the sob stories of the people that didn't support Larry Poncho Brown, but the millions of people that have. I make my career on the people that know what I do. You're using that sword to your advantage instead of talking about the edges. Hey, I can see yeah. him bitch and moan about Baltimore. I've been here 57 years. Baltimore has never given me a goddamn thing. Bopai never gave me nothing. For years, they were trying to keep me out of Artscape. See, the jury in is a racket, too. Yeah. If you want to be, and no black people on jury, and I, black people's work have particular look, people of other uh, persuasions have a look in their work, you can be racistly excluded by the content of your work. I'm talking to artists about the same stuff now, and they wonder why they're not passing juries. I had to design a style to jury well. A style? I developed a style to jury well. I was an illustrator. I'm a graphic designer. My work is not traditional. So if I put in my drawings and my paintings and I'm using airbrush and all this other stuff, I'm not going to jury well. If Mm. my work is super pro-black and scary, I'm not going to jury well. If I'm using orange, green, and and black, (laughs) I'm not going to jury well. So at some point, I had to come up with something that looked painterly. Something that wasn't aggressive, something that looked more traditional to jury well. And that is something, take notes, interns, because if you don't keep trying, if you keep being afraid to mess up, you're not going to be able to learn what works for you to jury well. Oh, not only that, you have to humble yourself because everybody out there now wants to do what they see. Now, what you guys have is 
being yourself is pride. When I was coming up, that wasn't you. You 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 be yourself when you grown. Now everybody <laughs> comes in trying to have their own identity. You know, so now you want to submit what the hell you want to submit. You want to paint and produce what you want to paint and produce. And now the marketplace doesn't know what to do with your stuff. Mm. Everybody's work now is socially plugged in. So they got shootings and Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin or marching. Okay, who's going to hang that in their living room? You got powerful work. You're speaking. Yeah, your work has a, a, a source. Who's going to buy it? And so now, you know, I, I came through a time where those things were separated out. You already back then knew. I know who my demographic is. My demographic from 35 to 65 and they're 85% women. They're 4% white. It's 5% other. Most people don't even know what their demographic is. Hmm. I know who buys my work. Mm-hmm. So now you got all these socially thinking people now who are doing works that really show the struggle of the things we're going through. Who going to hang that shit? <laughs> you got to sit down and figure out what is you and who you're trying to connect with. Mm-hmm. For instance, there's a woman's movement going on. Shit, there's a dog movement. The animals got more rights than we got. They got they got dog uh, uh like places you can leave them for like holidays and shit. Yeah, they got stores that cater to just dogs. So you paint dogs. What what and you, and that's your hobby. That's what you feeling. Everybody else think you crazy because you paint dogs, but you're not sitting down trying to figure out how to make that work. Something wrong with you. There's, there's a lot of opportunities out there. So I'm using that. I'm being a smart ass to use that the example. But that's really how it works. You got to figure out who you're going to plug into. And then look at the longevity of that, what that interest is going to be. And once you get that, along with your branding, along with your business savvy and entrepreneurial spirit, that's how you survive as an artist full time. It's not all the other stuff. It's not the ethics. It's not the integrity. It's not the perfection. It's not all those things. It's not these standards that stifle and, and stop. And the most folks now are so scared to take a risk because they don't want to make a mistake. Because they don't have enough trial and error. They're afraid to put themselves out there because nobody wants to fail. Let's talk about the real thing. Those are the problems. That don't have nothing to do with the creativity. That don't have nothing to do with being successful as an artist. Plus, I want to rewind a bit, a bit, too. When I went to Micah and I went to get my program at school and I picked out graphic design versus general fine arts, the graphic design program wasn't discounted. It was the same as fine arts. So why is it as soon as I sign my application and turn over my check, I signed on to be a subclass citizen as a, as a graphic designer? Because if I had gone general fine arts, the hierarchy would have changed like this as a perception of being an artist. So we got things we moving into automatically that you don't you don't get it when you make the decision. It's yeah. not a red pill, blue pill when you go into Micah. <laughs> it really should be. Because you're actually signing mm. on to the destiny of the path you've chosen. And if you don't know that path before you get there, oh, you're going to find it out by the time you leave. You're going to find out by the time your ass graduate. <laughs> And hopefully you'll get it way before then. But I see it happening all the time. I remind people all the time, man, no matter how this market, it's like a gang. I had to sign up to a gang. And the gang that I'm with, 
uh, has some support systems and the fine art establishment might view me a particular way. The fine art establishment might not like the fact that I'm a solo person, that I do my representation, that I do my self-promoting. That comes with the gang that I'm in. So that means that if my aspirations are to be into a museum one day, I might have signed up to the wrong gang at this point in my life. But yeah. guess what? I looked at the other side. I looked at the other gang. My counterparts in museums is horrible. Elizabeth Catlett, Charles White, Jacob Lawrence, their works are way below their white counterparts. All you artists, you interns that aspire to be in a museum, get over it. Your ass ain't going to never be in a museum. If your ass is doing six paintings a year, if your ass is not selling no work, if you don't have any major connections with anybody, then take that dream and put it into a book and put it underneath your bed and your mattress. Wake me when the people that I that look like me, when their works are making more than a hundred million dollars. Because right now, as it goes, everybody's all tenolated. Oh, you know, Kerry, Kerry James Marshall just sold a piece for 21 million. Oh, Basquiat, he just sold a piece for so and so million. I'm like, yeah, but that was an auction house. Yeah, he didn't make that money. He didn't make that money. His estate didn't make that money. But not just that. It's a discounted version by going through an auction house, which means it should be well beyond. So that means that now African-American artists just get into the auction house. You can still buy a Roman beard now for less than $100,000. For real? He's one of our heroes. So it's all twisted. So now what do I need to be in that gang for? My biggest slogan that I want them to put on my tombstone is that I'd rather be in 500,000 homes than one museum. That's that's real right there. Yeah. I don't fuck with that institutional art. I don't like the gallery in the museum. I got so, you, but yeah. no matter whether you like it. Yeah. I, but, but see, I don't, I'm not shooting you down personally. No, I'm saying that that but I again, be like we're you. getting ready to have an, a, 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 an establishment conversation and an, an aesthetic and a, a, a theory conversation that's irrelevant. You are a young <laughs> artist and you deserve to have whatever playing field you deserve to have. You get, you should be able to pursue your work the way you want to pursue it. But please know your partners, know your roads, know your gang from the beginning. Establish what your strategy is going to be. And when you make that determination, strap in and do it. Chess. Definitely chess. There you go, man. You want to play checkers? <laughs> go play checkers. You want to play, um, I say, for folks that really don't get it, tic-tac-toe. <laughs> <laughs> then go, let's play tic-tac-toe. Uh, I don't mind. Uh, I like all of them. But for my for my art career, oh, it's going to be chess. And I'm going to try to control as many pieces as I can because I can. And if that means certain opportunities mm-hmm. don't come my way, I can live with that. I, I, I can live with the fact that I live in Baltimore City. I'm active. I speak to colleges. I have uh, people, even agencies like um, GBCA and all these folks coming in. GBCA ain't going to ever give me the breaker. They're not going to give me the rubies. They're not going to give me any of those things. I get that. Melissa King Hammond was my instructor over at Micah. She's my son's godmother, but I already know that I'm in a different part of the business. But the gang I signed up with is not part of that gang. Now, does that mean that some things won't fall in the middle? Oh, yeah, they will, because I've been doing it long enough now where I have a reputation in the business. I've done my own branding. I've done a lot of things to support my longevity. 
But I have chosen my, my, my path a long time ago. I tell people proudly when they look at my work. I'm a graphic designer. That's what I came <laughs> into this thing as. I didn't have the aesthetic. See, another thing, too, is that people thought I studied illustration and painting at MICA. Mm. I studied graphic design at MICA and photography at MICA. Yep. So that, you know, that, that kind of destroys the, the expectation of coming out of art school I remember one thing that stuck with me very well was uh, some someone doing a presentation said that most of you, if not all of you, who are in this painting program probably aren't going to be an ending up doing painting when you graduate because you're going to need to figure out how to wear all those hats that you need to wear to be successful because you need to be successful in your own way and you cannot follow a guideline. And you know it's, it sounds overwhelming. Like, oh my goodness! Oh, I it's real. Yeah. <laughs> I went through the same thing. Yeah, nineteen eighty. I'm going into I'm registering at MICA. We're in the station building. They're going through registration. All the students are there, and they call and roll to see who's there, who's not there. And the guy says, you know, most of you guys are not going to do this as a living. There's a small percentage of you that are starting this venture that will finish. He said that at like almost damn orientation. So you can imagine being a young African-American male in the room, what I may or could have heard, depending on my disposition. Hmm. You know, so we got to keep rolling. Art is the backbone of everything, but nobody don't like us. We're not special. Artists walk around thinking they're special. You're not special, man. God mm -hmm. made us this way for a reason, you know? No, no, nobody don't owe you nothing. Stop waiting for a handout. And stop being and looking for the trough. Stop going and thinking if you if, your life is much broader than if there's a grant out there. My God, man! If we have a grant, another grant discussion, I'm just gonna fall out on the floor and have a seizure. You heard it from him yourself, interns, all of you, Mister Larry Poncho Brown, the Grandmaster Art Pro. <laughs> Don't be scared. The difference between a coward and somebody that is courageous is that. They're both scared. It's just that the person that's courageous enough to do what they need to do to get what they need to done, get what they need to do accomplished is that they just did it while they were scared. Listen, everyone, if you're shook, don't worry. You're not alone. I learned quite a bit. You got anything you want to plug, Poncho? No, man. All I want to plug is, um, man. Do I have anything? Well, well I'm going to do the basic plug. You can find me anywhere on social networking under the under the Art of Poncho. I have my website, my Instagram, my um, Twitter, my Facebook. All that stuff is under the Art of Poncho. Um, I'm just going to keep practicing what I preach. Um, you'll see me online doing all kinds of projects that are normally self-funded. Uh, I also use crowdfunding to fund my projects. I'm currently working on a documentary that talks about the artists and the art revolution that happened between 1985 to um, 2005 called mm. The Golden Age of African-American Art. We've already started to talk to all the people that were part of that infrastructure I talked about earlier that relied on before social networking. Most of them are still alive. So I started interviewing them and I'm B-rolling there with all of the top African-American artists in the country. We did our first shoot down in Atlanta, Georgia, where I shot maybe 12 interviews down there. We have a pre-teaser uh, that's on YouTube right now um, called The Golden Age of African-American Art. So that's what I'll be devoting my time to this year. 
is continuing to finish that documentary. When do you think it's going to come out? You know, uh, it's hard to to make a guesstimation of time on that. I'm doing so many different things right now. Uh, my goal is to try to do at least 20 more interviews. Okay. And I want to do them in different cities. So my next stop is going to be California. And then I'm going to probably finish up in the DMV because there are a lot of the people uh, in this area. So you're really just doing it organically in a way and going on tour to... Yes. When I went to Atlanta, there was 12 people that happened to live in Atlanta. California, I noticed another 12 people there. And then the DMV, God, that's another 12 interviews there. That'll be enough B-roll for me for the baseline story of how that, 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 um, that revolution with no name, well, it has a name now. It's called the Golden Age of African-American Art. It was the first time that African-American artists uh, really made a living, had venues, had uh, opportunities that opened up. Publishers did sign them up. Uh, the art industry uh, began the, the um, ethnic art genre uh, or subheading during that period of time. Uh, I was one of the first African-American artists that was signed with a white distributor back during that time with B. Charles Bibbs, Cynthia St. James, and a couple of other artists. So... Uh, there was some magical things, but because it was pre-social networking, it wasn't documented. And we were making so much money, man. It was so crazy. <laughs> and it moved so fast that nobody had time to document what was happening. Nobody did it in, in literature. Nobody did it in writing. But think about it. It was a commercial movement. Traditionally, academia would write about anything that was artistic. So naturally, we, that whole thing happened and they didn't care whether they got documented or not. But now I care. So oh. that's why the documentary is being done. History. Uh, so before before we sign off now, I have a really question I'm super curious about. How how did you start working with Dick Gregory? Hustle, man. Hustle. <laughs> That's so Dick, cool. To Dick me. Gregory was doing a lecture here in town. And another friend of mine who happens to be a vegetarian, Reginald Turan, shout out Reginald Turan. Uh, he was my, my, my uh, strategist. We would sit down in my black bedroom. And we would say, hey, man, we about to go. We're going to go see Dick Gregory. Back then, the Bohemian Diet was at his height. And he was a nutritionist. Yeah. And I was an artist. So we said, man, we need to meet him, man, if we could meet him. So we plotted it. He was going to be at Catonsville Community College giving a lecture. I put a portfolio together, a whole bunch of stuff. And Reginald went. And we went and met him. And I gave him the portfolio after the thing. Wasn't you know, didn't make it a sales point. I just said, Mr. Gregory, this is a gift for you. And Reginald went and introduced himself. We started to leave. And he opened it up and he says, young brother, come here for a minute. And I say, yeah. He said, did you do all this work right here? I said, yes, I did all the work. You know, he gave me a job on site that same day. So if I hadn't taken, taken the initiative to even just go in front of him, it would have never happened. But I have that kind of, I want, I'm curious of how to form partnerships. And I think that if I want to leave you with something, that's what I'm encouraging. Uh, um, it's not based on what's in your pocket. It's based on somebody that can see your vision and may have the resources to make your vision come to fruition. Um, that's our future as creatives. It's not the other way around. It's not grants. It's not art initiatives. It's corporate. Corporate is unscathed, untouched. Typically, corporations mm. give money to art entities, but we're not finding ways to partner with them. If you're not writing a proposal and sending a proposal on somebody's desk for some sort of artistic partnership, then you're not laying any seeds. If you're waiting by the phone for the phone to ring, it is not going to ring. 
Okay. And if you and, and when it does ring, your ass is going to be somewhere at the subway. You ain't going to hear it when it comes in. You have to be willing to create opportunities. Writing proposals is the baseline of any of that. If you don't have 10 or five proposals on somebody's desk, that is a partnership that you like. Okay. You know, you can pick anything. I, I mean, so for me, it's so abstract. It makes it doesn't make sense to illustrate what I mean. I mean, I talked about it a little bit when I talked about the dog thing earlier. That's the easiest way I can equate it to you. That's how it is. You figure out what your work best speaks to and you start partnering with people that are along the line of the work that you do. Um, newspapers are looking for stories. You can get ink now before like you never did before. Right now, you can pretty much write your own story, submit it with a picture, and most papers will write it because they don't have the, the, the writer dispatch they used to have. They don't have the photographer dispatch they used to have. So they're basically waiting for stories to be to run, and they need them all the time. So what happens when you wrap your art initiative around finding your own media, and now you can cover it with your own video, and now you can YouTube it and present it the way you want? It gives you power that you never had before. And now I'm learning how to use that power to help me not only stay relevant, but to let keep people abreast of the type of art initiatives I'm getting involved in. It's the most exciting time to be an artist. Peace out. What's your sign-off question? Don't you have a sign-off Oh, question? did I, did I sign-off too quick? Oh, no, What's I your mean, sign-off question? Because your, your stuff has been deep, man. You, and your eyes wrinkle in the middle before you ask the question. Oh, I'm so used to... Tuning people out, but you're so intelligent that like I was completely engaged. Um, I also have terrible eyesight. No problem. Um, man, that question sounds so dumb now. It's man. not dumb. I was gonna ask you if you had to rate yourself out of ten, what would you rate yourself? I don't rate myself. I let other people do that. There we go. That's ten. A perfect answer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not trying to fit anybody's mold. I'm not kind of trying to compete with anybody. I know that what I do, I do well. And I just leave it there. I mean, because your ego gets too into it, you're going to lose anyway. I try to stay as humble as I can and just work. And that's what I do. I work. I let other people determine what I am. Out of 10? Huh? Out of 10 for you? Yeah. 10? I mean, yeah, see, I I would never do that. You know, we're not not objectifying the situation too much. Just. Well, today, I hope that Renz and I were 10 out of 10 art pro students. You guys are 10 <laughs> out of 10. I'm going to reserve mine for what other folks may feel. I know what I am, and I just kind of ride on that energy. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our very first interview. And if I could sneak into his building again, we're going to have a part two, hopefully. One day. Anytime, y'all welcome. <laughs> you bring the subject, I got the answer. I'll bring business cards next time, too. You got it. Man. Oh, yeah, you failed, man. Yeah. You got a failing great business card. Renz was the only one of the few he people that had me. two cards. He should have known. Renz was the man. Yeah. And he still is the man. He's so thank man. you so much for considering me for your show. Uh, keep doing big things. But y'all get rid of the box. We're not thinking outside of the box. We're getting rid of the damn box. Guilty guilty all right everybody have a good day evening or afternoon whatever you're doing